This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Anthony Fidel here with the very last program in our 2018 series of Future Tense. And what a year it's been. Today, a bit of a data theme. We'll hear about a new EU-funded project looking at the future impact of computational law. Its principal investigator will join us in just a few minutes. We'll also get up to date on a new data trust mark for Australian researchers. How will it work and who is it meant to reassure? And we'll take you back to the Quayside project in Toronto to find out what's happened to Google's plans to take over the construction and governance of a prime chunk of that city's waterfront. In the late 90s, they brought us the most advanced search engine on the web. Google is making it its mission to simplify every aspect of our lives. And now they're setting their sights on another target, our cities. Google boss Larry. It seems like every week there's kind of breaking news that's giving a lot of people pause over Keyside, whether it's kind of on the process side or it's activists digging in themselves and saying, oh wait, the data privacy that we thought would be promised is getting pushed by the wayside. Getting to grips with Google City. Final approval, it seems, has been delayed until the new year. We'll have the details shortly. But first up, Murray Hildebrandt, Research Professor of Interfacing Law and Technology at the Free University in Brussels. She's been in Australia at the invitation of the University of New South Wales Law Faculty. Come January, she'll begin work as the head of a five-year EU-funded project called Counting as a Human Being in the Era of Computational Law. But before we hear about the project and its aims, what exactly do we mean by that term? So computational law refers to computation, so that means you are bringing the computer into the domain of law, and that would mean, for instance, that you use artificial intelligence to predict the outcome of cases, or that you put a contract or another legal norm on a blockchain and make it self-executing. So that means you enforce compliance via computer code. And the project that you're involved in, this five-year study, is going to look at the what the relationship of computational law to what we mean by the rule of law. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely true, yeah. So what are your aims in doing that? Well, the aim is, of course, to ensure that the kind of legal protection that we now have, and I'm thinking particularly a human rights protection, but also the idea that you can contest decisions made by government, sometimes made by large private players, that we ensure that this type of legal protection survives the upcoming computational law. So what are the concerns in regard to that? Well, there's a whole range of concerns, so maybe it's good to take an example. I think many people have heard of the use of the Compass. That's a type of software that is used in the United States by courts to get statistics about the probability that somebody who is going to be convicted of a crime will recidivize or not. This is a kind of estimate that courts always have to make. But at this moment, many states in the United States have bought a license for this software. Software is proprietary. 
And that means they are going to in part at least base their decision whether to grant somebody parole or to decide the sentence that somebody who is convicted of a crime gets on the output of this software. And that raises, as you can understand, many questions. So just taking that example, it's easy to see how that kind of technology could benefit a court or could benefit the legal process in terms of being able to prioritise more efficiently and saving time. Is the concern, though, that the technology may start to shape what we actually mean by the law, that its usage may actually change the nature of what we mean by legal protection? Well, I can see you have read deeply into my project because that's exactly the idea. So the more obvious question is whether the narrative that this technology that costs money, of course, so let's say this is taxpayers' money, that this is going to make decisions better. That means that the probability is correct or at least better than what a court would otherwise have decided. That is the first question, whether that is actually true. I think many people who are into artificial intelligence will have big doubts. So the experts will say, well, it might be, but this is about human behavior. That's very, very complex. You cannot train algorithms, for instance, on future data. And that means that the most important data that you want to have to train your algorithm is by definition out of your reach. So it might have a kind of a shine, a magical shine of objectivity, but it's basically statistics. So that is the more obvious concern. The second obvious concern is discrimination. By now, there is a whole library of academic papers about the extent to which this has caused courts to engage in indirect racial discrimination. This has given rise to very detailed discussions within the context of machine learning. But what I want to do with the project is look at the assumptions. Look at the assumptions, for instance, of machine learning. These are mathematical assumptions. And then look at the assumptions that we have when we do law, which so far we do what I call text-driven. So law, to a large extent, is based on text, on enacting text. Even when courts decide something, they do so in text. means we can understand what a court does. It means that they have to give reasons, reasons that go back to a legal competence that has been decided by a democratic legislator. All that begins to shift when you make yourself in part or even increasingly dependent on systems that have completely different assumptions and are very hard to understand or to assess or to explain to people. The law isn't just about written code, is it? There is an element of human discretion in the application of the law. Is the effect of computational law on that discretion, that human discretion, is that also a focus of your research or likely to be a focus of your research? Yes, I think that's an excellent and extremely interesting question because some people think that if a court or a police officer for that reason or somebody else from government agency has discretion, that that means that that person can do whatever they want at that moment. That is, of course... Nonsense. (laughs) Even if a court has discretion, that discretion is meant to adapt a written rule to the situation at hand, which is always slightly different from the situation that has occurred in previous decisions. So human language has this particular flexibility. 
but there are certain principles that are core to the law. For instance, the principle that you must treat equal cases equally and cases that are not equal, unequal to the extent that they are not equal. And uh, well, there are a lot of other principles like the principle of trust. If somebody has legitimately expected certain kinds of behavior from the government, then in principle, if the government has actually given rise to that sort of expectations, the government should comply with that. And these sort of principles are very hard to translate into unambiguous code. As we know, computers only understand unambiguous language. That's why we have to translate into computer code. So, Let's say something gets lost in translation. Paradoxically, some people might think that that makes legal certainty stronger because the computer cannot do anything but all the time make consistent decisions because there is no room for ambiguity in the system. But because we are human beings and because every situation changes and society also develops, that sort of rigid certainty or inflexible certainty will not provide legal certainty, but kind of arbitrary rigidity. So it achieves at a certain point the opposite of what you would want. This is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell, and I'm speaking with Marie Hildebrandt from the Free University in Brussels. Now, this project will go through until 2024. Who do you hope to influence with this research? For me, the most important thing is that not just the people that are going to be appointed as researchers on the project, but a much wider group of lawyers and organizations like the judiciary or institutions like the judiciary, public prosecutor, those who actually practice law, who take legal decisions, that we can give them a kind of vocabulary and understanding of how these systems actually operate, how they think. So I'm not going to try and turn lawyers into computer scientists, but make them sensitive to a whole lot of design decisions that are made when you develop a system who can predict the outcome of cases so that they can interact with the people who develop these systems. And they can also call those who employ these systems call them to account and say, hey, on what data did you train your algorithm? What sort of performance metrics did you employ? What sort of hypothesis space did you develop? Now, this may sound like, oh my God, we're never going to understand that. One of the objectives of this project is to make these sort of terms saying household terms would be a bit overdoing it, but to make it a normal thing that people can in part intuitively relate to this terminology and make sure that they don't get taken for a ride already at the level of how these systems are built. So there's a practical side to it and an informative side to it, but it occurs to me that the speed of technological change and uptake is such that you know lawyers are being uh, having to confront these kinds of issues today, aren't they? Yes. Uh, how do you keep pace with that and still be relevant? Many people say that the law is always behind these sort of technological developments. On the one hand, I think that is true and that is an advantage. It is behind in the sense that law is 
because it is stuck with language, with written language, which means sequential processing. So when you read a book, you start left and you go right, then you go from the top of the page to the bottom, first page to the last page, or all the other way around. But you have to go step by step. That sort of slows you down. It also means that you can take a certain distance with what you are reading. That's a very different way of relating to content than when you enter a website where you quickly begin to click on things and go deep in the website. And are actually, we have learned now to take a sort of random access to look at the whole picture. So it's a very different way of processing things. So to the extent that law slows this process down, it may have certain advantages because it allows you to be more critical, not to, to go head over heels in things before you have a proper idea of the consequences of doing that. On the other hand, I am a European. When I look at the GDPR, that's the General Data Protection Regulation that has been in force now since May, and how that has been designed, then I see a lot of far-reaching decisions that were made when this law was uh, developed that are actually very much on the spot. I think if you understand the assumptions of new technologies, so not that you go out and look at what people do, but that you actually understand the, in this case, mathematical assumptions, then it becomes far easier to sort of get on their front end to see where they will end up. Because if you know the assumptions, you also know the implications. So you can sort of see where they will get to, what they absolutely cannot do. You can see the limitations of the technology and you can also see the fantastic opportunities. So I'm not sure that law is necessarily outdated. I think if laws are developed well, designed well by knowledgeable people, that they can guide and constrain innovation. Many people think that innovation is good because it's innovation. That's, of course, nonsense. There is good innovation and there is bad innovation. And the idea of the law is not to impose innovation or to block innovation, but to constrain innovation and to make sure that there is a level playing field so that, for instance, it's not so that a company that wants to protect privacy is pushed out of the market by other companies that do not care about privacy. If you put a level playing field there, if you make sure that everybody has to protect privacy, make sure that this can be enforced, then you can do what the EU is now called responsible innovation. Professor Murray Hildebrandt, Principal Investigator for the EU-funded project Counting as a Human Being in the Era of Computational Law, which gets underway in January. Now, while in Australia, Professor Hildebrandt gave a lecture at a forum organised by the Allens Hub for Law, Technology and Innovation at the University of New South Wales. It was called The Magic of Data-Driven Regulation, and there's a link to the audio of her presentation on the Future Tense website. The Australian Market and Social Research Society, the AMSRS, is the peak body for research professionals in Australia, and it recently launched a new fair data accreditation program and trust mark. The organisation's president is Dr Vicky Arbes. 
our industry, research industry, is based on trust. And all of us as a community rely on the information, information gathering from individuals that are then collated. And on that basis, we know more about what communities need, how to run services, create policies, target initiatives well, without that information, all of the decision makers are going to have a lot of trouble. To be able to trust the fair data mark, the company has to go through a really rigorous audit on the basis of 10 values. It actually has been driven by some very big changes in Europe, a thing called the GDPR, which is a, a very stringent set of criteria for looking after data, so data protection legislation. And this fair data mark that we're adopting is up to that level of protection. It is as tight as anywhere in the world. We'll link to the 10 fair data principles on our website, but could I get you to give us a taste of the sorts of things that they entail? Yes, absolutely. I mean, critically, the first one is consent. It's incredibly important that people know what it is they're giving their information for, how it will be used, and that is a key part of any engagement they have with research. Anyone asking for their information for their private data needs to be transparent about how that will be used so that people know exactly what they're in for. It's also how that data is going to be used. You know, the, the consent is, it ensures that what people have consented to is actually what the data is used for and nothing else. And of course, it makes sure that, you know, there is no selling or additional marketing from that data. It is used only for whatever it is that they've signed up for. They also assess the security of the data, uh, making sure there's no possibility possibility of breaches, that all the staff that have any access to that data understand the privacy principles and sign up to it, that there are protections in the supply chain. So any other um, companies that are part of the gathering of that data or the analysis of that data are also signed up to the same level of protection. So it's, it's really a whole lot of very stringent audits, not just on what companies say they do, but actually the audit goes in and checks that they do do it. And it's done annually with a cross-check to make sure all of those points are adhered to. So you use this audit process to enforce compliance. And what the penalty, if there is a breach, is is to have the, the label withdrawn. Yeah, absolutely. The company would be re-audited if there's been a breach and if that's proven that their processes weren't up to scratch, then the mark is taken off. And how does the label work exactly? I mean, from a consumer perspective, how would they know that a company has this label? They can go and check the website, all of the companies that are fair data accredited, but with any request for information, you know, a research team rings you up or, you know, you go in to do a research group or you give permission for your data to be used by a company, then those that are accredited will be telling you that they're fair data accredited. That would be part of the initial transparency of explaining what they want your data for and what they're going to do with it. They would say that they're fair data. You can then check that if you have any concerns. But yes, and anything written, it'd be on their websites. It would be something that they use because any company that's going through this really quite torturous process of becoming accredited is wanting this to be consumer-facing so that any public-facing data gathering, the public can trust that that information is going to be looked after well and therefore are much more willing to give it. 
But isn't it the case that it's private corporations like Facebook or Google or even, you know, marketing organisations, they're the ones who who are really using and in some cases abusing personal data, aren't they? This, this doesn't cover them, does it? Well, it does if they become accredited. I mean, I don't know that we're holding our breath for Facebook, but you never know. There's a lot of pressure. But certainly companies, telecommunications companies, financial institutions and banks, marketing companies, many of those are members of our association and therefore, you know, adhere to our rules and are looking into getting the fair data mark. So no, we're expecting it to be broadly any company that takes this sort of protection of information seriously will want to be accredited. We want to make sure that we're on the front foot and that we're using the most stringent regulations worldwide. Dr Vicky Arbus, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, thank you. We have this rare opportunity on our waterfront, starting with Keyside, to build a community from scratch with affordability designed into its DNA. But right now, nothing's built yet. This is just what we're thinking. And honestly, we're much more interested to hear what you're thinking. We want to hear from as many people as possible. We want to hear from solution-oriented people. That's a promotional video for Google's Keyside project in Canada. Sure, they say they're listening to the public, but whether they are or not is hotly disputed. Google has the support of both the provincial and federal government in Toronto to take a disused section of the city's former docklands and transform it into a smart city. But their plans to not only build the precinct, but also to administer it, have been divisive. We first brought you news of the project back in May. So where is it at now? Ava Kaufman has been following the project for the Intercept news site. It seems like every week there's kind of breaking news that's giving a lot of people pause over Keyside, whether it's investigators in Ontario looking into the procurement process, saying, oh, this looks like it might have been a little rushed, and it looks like the kind of Google sibling sidewalk labs that is providing all of the infrastructure for Keyside, it looks like they might have gotten some information that they shouldn't have. So whether it's kind of on the process side or it's activists digging in themselves and saying the data privacy that we thought would be promised is getting pushed by the wayside and so on. And we have seen also, haven't we, resignations from advisors to this project and also, I understand, some members of the board. Yeah, so in the last couple of months, one Waterfront Toronto board member and two digital advisors, so Waterfront Toronto is the government group that is partnering with Sidewalk Labs to bring this project about, and the kind of lead digital privacy advisor and strategist all resigning from the project. And their concerns are varied, but they all involve a disappointment with due process and a complete lack of data privacy protections. There has been a coalition formed as well, hasn't there, called Toronto Open Smart Cities Forum. What's the aim of that particular coalition? Is it to stop the project or is it to modify the project? What's interesting about this coalition is they're trying to think a lot more just about process 
it's kind of a broad group of everyone from community organizers to tenured academics to people who specialize in smart cities. But what they'd like to draw attention to is the fact that no real community engagement has happened so far. And so first and foremost, they want to be able to have a say in what's going on and kind of take it from there. This Google sibling company, Sidewalk Labs, which is running this particular project, they have spent quite a bit of money on public relations, though, haven't they? Yeah, when you break it down, Sidewalk Labs has spent 11 million of uh, initial 50 million budget on communications and engagement and what they call a kind of PR strategy. And this has involved closed door meetings with key intellectuals and popular governmental figures in Toronto, as well as building influencers within the government. And so according to yeah, an open politics blog, agencies such as the prime minister's office, the public health agency and the treasury board uh, have all been lobbied by Sidewalk Labs. Now, there are various concerns that are being expressed by people who are opposed to this particular project. But is it right to say that at the heart of this is a concern about the anti-democratic nature of this project and indeed the way in which this Google affiliate Sidewalk Labs is conducting itself? I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, one of the key concerns is that you're getting a private company coming in and negotiating with a kind of city board and government agency behind closed doors on things that ultimately should be public processes, like how residents want to live, what kind of housing is going to be in this waterfront development, what privacy looks like, and, and whether any of these things that Sidewalk Labs is offering in Sidewalk Toronto, such as, you know, autonomous vehicles, a better lighting system on, on streets, is what Toronto residents actually need. As I understand it, Sidewalk Labs or Sidewalk Toronto is trying to reassure people by establishing what they're calling a civic data trust. What do we know about that? What have they said about this trust and and what its role will be? So the civic data trust is a kind of new initiative from Sidewalk Labs, and it's the first time that they've kind of said what they're doing with all this data, which I should mention has been a large concern. I mean, this project has been going on for a year and for a full year. Everyone's just kind of been told, wait and see, which when coming from a company like Google does not necessarily inspire much trust. So this civic data trust is the first step after a year of waiting to kind of show people what Keyside actually plans to do in terms of governing this collected information. The idea is that no one is going to own the data. Essentially, that means most of this data ideally will be aggregated anonymously. But there are some questions and concerns over what that actually means. Uh, How anonymized is it possible for this data to be? What about when it comes to the terms of sharing this data with law enforcement? And one blogger has pointed out that it's possible that for uh, especially sensitive data, there actually would be licenses granted to third parties, in which case this idea of the data being open to everyone is, is not quite the case. Ultimately, the main concern is democratic. Sidewalk Labs, you know, according to Toronto Open Cities Smart Forum and other groups, should not be setting the terms of its own regulation. Now, the opposition to this particular project is growing, as you said earlier. The project did have some very high-level endorsement at the launch, didn't it, including from the Prime Minister himself, the Prime Minister of Canada. What about the political dynamics of all of this? Have we seen a growing wariness or uh, perhaps concern from uh, politicians with regard to the project? I think that one of the things that I know that activists are concerned about is that this project will be politicized in Canada and 
we'll see a split among parties in terms of support and opposition. And so one of the they're trying to do is kind of actually avoid that type of involvement and try to speak to a bunch of different stakeholders at once to kind of make sure that it doesn't just turn into what's seen as a partisan issue. And just finally, where is the project at in terms of the approval process? So in terms of the approval process, the project has now been pushed back even further to 2019. We're not going to really see any sign of whether or not the project goes ahead until then. As far as concerned residents, this is seen as a good thing, more time for deliberation to create stakeholders and to actually ask questions about what Keyside really represents and who it's for. But it's still unclear whether the project will be subject to actual municipal approval, whether it needs to go through a vote or not. So that's something that residents are trying to figure out. Well, Ava Kaufman, thank you very much for updating us. Pleasure to speak with you. And that's it for today's Future Tense and for our 2018 series. Next week, the first in our holiday season of highlight programs, some of the best of the last 12 months. And don't forget, we will be back again from the 27th of January with a slate of new shows for 2019. Thanks to my fantastic co-producer, Karen Savanovitz. Enjoy the holidays wherever you are. I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.